Welcome to No Rain Date, a community podcast about local news and people. No Rain Date is a production of Saucon Source LLC. For more local news and information, please visit SaucinSource.com. Hello, No Rain Date listeners. I'm Josh Popachak, the host of No Rain Date and the publisher of Sock and Source, here with a news roundup for the week ending August 21st, 2021. I'm coming to you actually on August 23rd, and we're into the school year again, and that's kind of what I'm going to focus on in this briefer news roundup. It's been a little bit light lately in terms of news because it's been the end of August, and obviously a lot of people were hitting their vacation spots before school started, which, as I mentioned, happened in Saucon Valley today, August 23rd. A lot of other districts are returning on August 30th, and a few, I think, might still go back after Labor Day. So it's more spread out than ever, and it's more to keep track of than ever. But in terms of Saucon Valley, there was a sort of last-minute update to the district's COVID health and safety plan, which occurred last week at a special school board meeting that was held on August 16th. That was held at the high school solely to discuss the idea of masking. There were a total of five different options that the board considered, and the meeting actually ran more than five hours. Now, a lot of that had to do with public comment that the board heard from a number of parents who were quite divided in their opinions about mandatory masking for some or all students versus optional masking. And to provide context, the board had previously decided that masking to prevent the spread of COVID-19 would be optional for all students beginning at the start of the school year. That was on July 27th, right around the same time that the CDC made a significant change in their recommendations, including their recommendations for K-12 students. They had previously said, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. They changed that dramatically, in large part because of the rise of the Delta variant, which is more transmissible than the original COVID-19 strain. They changed their guidance to state that even vaccinated individuals should wear a mask inside. Now, this is sort of a moot point in some ways because kids that are under 12 are not vaccinated at all. They're not eligible to receive the vaccine yet, and it's unclear when or if that will even happen. So regardless of the change in guidance, a lot of students were not going to be vaccinated, which is kind of why I don't totally understand why it was going to be optional for everybody or even why it's still optional for everybody under certain circumstances because under the new plan there has to be a significant level of community transmission occurring for masks to become mandatory for K through 6 and then even more transmission has to be occurring for mandatory masking for everybody, including all students and all staff. That would be over 100 cases per day 
per 100,000 residents in Northampton County. So I'll break down the math for you a little bit. Northampton County is approximately 312,000 residents. So there would have to be more than 300 new cases a day. And that's a rolling average for a one week period for everybody to have to start wearing a mask at Saucon Valley. That has not happened since the pandemic began in March, 2020. So even when we had the huge spike in cases last winter, peaking in December, the highest rolling seven day average for the county was something like 94 cases per day per 100,000 residents. So again, I'm a little bit skeptical about, about that level, that threshold rather, and, and why it's so high. I, I don't necessarily think that it should be that high. This is a more dangerous strain of the virus, or it can be, especially if you're not vaccinated. And we have had reports of even children and adolescents in rare cases becoming severely ill with the Delta variant. So, you know, I'm a believer in erring on the side of caution, and I just did not hear that sentiment expressed by a lot of the parents who spoke at the meeting, and I'm, I'm as confused by that as, as I am upset by it. Of course, it's their prerogative to have those views, and I know that ideology regarding personal freedom and rights as an American citizen underlie a lot of those views that we're hearing. What I can't accept is some of the misinformation that was stated at the meeting by residents. Intentionally or unintentionally, there was a lot of debunked claims shared, such as that masks, you know, are essentially poisoning kids and causing harm, you know. I did some Googling. As an editor, you don't want to promote conspiracy theories. So I don't want to link out to, you know, false claims per se, but I found them. You know, I found the sources of these claims. And it's just unfortunate and sad that, you know, there's that much misinformation out there, that it has affected that many people, and that they are so affected by it, that they're willing to compromise their own kids safety in the name of it. You know, and, and I honestly think these people think they're doing the, the best thing for their kids and, and maybe for others, but I'm not really sure that they're thinking a lot about others. That's, that's kind of the larger question I have. And that's also sort of scary because we used to look at things communally and have a social contract. Maybe we didn't know what that term was, but, you know, I feel like when I was a kid, there was a greater sense of doing good, not just for yourself, but by others. And in America today, it's often every man for himself. The school board has the very difficult job in a case like this of balancing the community's needs with endorsing the concept of personal choice and freedom and not coming across as being heavy-handed. And I don't think you can do both, really. I, I don't. I mean, I think they tried to compromise in this case, and I'm glad that they went in the direction that they did because the other plans that they were considering wouldn't have even 
required masking under this tiered system, from what I understand. So it definitely was a compromise that this was approved, and we'll see what the results of it are. But you know, the fact that there's not really going to be any type of mitigation protocols in place for sports, including contact sports, I just don't see how that doesn't lead to a, a large increase in transmission in the coming days and weeks. And particularly as temperatures get colder, more people are inside. I feel for the teachers who are teaching classrooms full of little kids, many of whom won't be wearing masks because they don't have to and their parents don't believe in them. Their parents maybe think that they're actually harmful to them. Well, what may actually be happening in that case is that one of their children is sickening another child or even worse, potentially a teacher because the older you are, the more likely you are to develop serious complications from COVID-19. Even if you're vaccinated, you can develop serious complications in one of these so-called breakthrough cases. And you just have to read the headlines to hear about them. There are dozens, if not hundreds of breakthrough cases a day now. And we are seeing the number of deaths from COVID-19 increase once again, too. At a recent school board meeting, I was a little bit troubled. This was not a Saucon Valley school board meeting, but I was a little bit troubled to hear a statistic cited that there had not been any deaths in Lehigh County from COVID-19 since May. Okay, that's not close to being true. Certainly deaths were, you know, at a low ebb over the summer. And there were a handful in the earlier part of the summer. But I counted them and there were at least probably 10 since June 1st in Lehigh County. That's where this district is located. And so, you know, that kind of misinformation being out there is dangerous. So is information that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, which I did highlight in the story I published today about Saucon Valley School Board's updated health and safety guidance. They actually published a report in June in which it was stated that kids wearing face masks could be poisoned by carbon monoxide. This is the Journal of the American Medical Association, one of the most highly esteemed publications regarding public health in the world, or it was. I can't believe that they would do that. They later retracted it, citing a lack of scientific evidence. Well, guess what? By the time they did that, that claim had gone viral and all around the world and been you know, mutated into all kinds of other you know, hideous arguments against masking that will no doubt make the jobs of people like the Saucon Valley School Board, you know, 10 million times harder now, not to mention the media's job, which is also to provide, you know, accurate information to help people stay safe. So, you know, I take a little bit of offense at the Journal of the American Medical Association being that reckless. And I think other people should too. Our institutions are obviously failing us in some cases during this pandemic. And people need to realize that and they need to look at each institution critically rather than, you know, simply accepting at face value that 
oh, well, you know, this has always been, you know, a rock for our society. Sort of how people view doctors and hospitals, I suppose. In the olden days, the word of a doctor or a hospital was always sacrosanct. And over the years, people have been encouraged to become their own advocate. Well, in this case, it's almost like that's working against us in the pandemic because everybody is trying to be their own advocate with their own set of facts. And that just doesn't work. So sorry to be that negative, but I'm very concerned about the fall and what's going to happen. I want everybody to be safe, obviously. And my reporting is going to have that as its you know, number one goal. I'm not going to share information that I think would endanger anybody because it is untrue. I'm not going to every set of facts equal weight because they don't deserve equal weight. There is one truth with regard to science and medicine with the understanding that this is an unknown or a new virus, obviously, and information about it is still being developed. So another issue is, of course, you know, taking what somebody said early on, for example, Dr. Fauci, when facts weren't, you know, there was one set of facts about the virus because it was new and there hadn't been time to develop a greater or a deeper understanding of it. If you pull that statement out of context and are using it, you know, in August 2021, when he said it in June 2020 and later, you know, retracted it or updated it because of updated knowledge about the virus, that's disingenuous and there's a lot of that going on too. So, you know, my advice is Google a lot of things, Google everything. At least it's a start, you know. I just will uh, search, you know, use the right, right click feature on a mouse and search for a term that I don't know and at least it's giving me some kind of context for it. You know, I'm not going to become an expert on that term, but I'm not going to just gloss over it, which I assume is what a lot of people do as they're educating or whatever you call it about COVID. And so we all need to do a better job of probing for more information. And certainly the, the media has failed in some cases. I'm not perfect. I'm sure that I could have reported more frequently or more in depth on certain things. In other cases, if I had done that, the information today would be out of date. So it wouldn't have, you know, done any good anyway. And it might have done more harm than good, especially if it's still on the internet and people are going back and reading that. And as I'm saying this, I'm thinking about articles that I should probably go back and try and update, but we're talking about, you know, dozens of articles, possibly hundreds of articles from the last year and a half. So the internet searches should be taken with a grain of salt. You know, always check the dates on the material you're reviewing. That's one good thing about the internet. It's pretty easy to determine in most cases when something was published. And if you're looking at something about COVID and it's dated like even any time in 2020 at this point, it's most likely pretty out of date. Certainly if it's, you know, something that includes a lot of numbers, you want the most recent statistics that you can get your hands on. Two great websites 
that I follow a lot are covidactnow.org and the New York Times because they have a huge and very comprehensive COVID-19 interactive map, multiple maps, multiple graphs that track everything from vaccination rates in states to, well, that's one of the big ones. But, and incidentally, the vaccination rates vary tremendously from state to state and, and from county to county. I think in Pennsylvania, there's almost as much of a difference between the least vaccinated county and the most vaccinated county as there is between the most vaccinated state, which is Vermont, and the least vaccinated state in Vermont. Something like 75% of residents have had at least one dose of the vaccine. And in Idaho, it's something like 37%. So a huge difference. Obviously, politics play a role in that. And they're playing a role in terms of vaccinations right down to the local level, right down to your neighborhood. We don't know in many cases who's vaccinated. We can't ask or it's not comfortable to ask. I certainly wouldn't advise it unless, you know, it's your own business or possibly a family member or friend. But, you know, you have to do what you have to do to protect your health and the health of loved ones. So that's my view on this 23rd day of August, 2021, as the new school year begins. I really hope everybody has a wonderful school year, stays safe, uses common sense, and follows science. We'll continue to bring you the truth about COVID, and whether you like it or not, we hope it will be useful for you. And next week, we'll have a full roundup once again. I hope everybody has a great week. Hey, Panther fans, I'm so excited to say it's crunch time here at Sock and Source. So let's go. I'm so excited. We're about one week away from the Sauk and Valley's 2021 season opener. Friday, August 27th, the Sauk and Valley Friday Night Lights will be burning bright. So let's not wait any longer. Let me give you a little reef install rundown of the 2021 Sauk and Valley Panther football squad. Head coach, offensive coordinator Brad Trembler's back. For his second year, 6-5 and five record in 2019. He led his team to a District 11 qualifier. 2-3 and three last year, but we'll blame that on the coronavirus. That wasn't the best outing for Saucon Valley. Three of those losses, or two of the three losses, I should say, the Panthers were operating on two days of practice only due to mitigation efforts. Rounding out Trembler's staff is Sam the Man Anajulu. He's the wide receiver, D-back coach. Teddy Araldi, defensive coordinator. He's a Dickinson guy, running back, linebacker coach. Mark Mixa, running back, linebackers. Jay Zingley, offensive line, defensive line. New face, Rob Hinson, wide receivers and D-backs. Kurt Warner coming to Salkin Valley. He coaches D-ends. It's uh, not the Rams, Kurt Warner, that some of you may be thinking. It's not the Penn State Seattle Seahawks, Kurt Warner. It's the Regalsville, Kurt Warner. Kurt is new to Coach Trembler's staff and has likely forgotten more football than most good coaches know. Also, let's welcome another new face to the Panthers. Mr. Bama boy, J.T. Sims, is the strength and conditioning coach. J.T. is very well liked here up north. He has spent some time in the past with Nick Saban at the University of Alabama. 
and of course yours truly coaching the quarterbacks and D-backs. Saucon Valley has some key losses. David Osman was a four-year starter. He was the mainstay on that offense and defensive line, but he's graduated and has moved on, as has fullback defensive end Chris Mann. He was a two-year starter. He's a tough guy. He's gone also. In addition, the Panthers lost a pair of wide receiver, D-backs, and Aaron Grog and Josiah Davis, who both finished their senior seasons. The injury report. It looks like promising sophomore receiver Constantine Donahue may be gone for the season due to a preseason injury. Saucon Valley's personnel by class, there are 14 seniors. The Panthers are senior-laden, 9 juniors, 11 sophomores, and 13 freshmen. The Panthers bring back some power. Along the offensive line, Owen Frederick's going to be a junior. Cody Swinney at the center position. He's a senior. Jack Maruchak, also a senior. They're going to be up front for the Panthers. Damien Garcia is back as a senior at running back, as is Josh Torres. They're both going to help the Panthers move the ball. Experienced receivers in Eternal Eris. He's a senior. Ty Sensitz, a senior. And Alex, Mr. Six Foot Three with long arms and can catch the heck out of the football. Mr. Magnata is a junior. Dante Mahaffey, familiar name, I'm sure, to Panther fans. He's a senior. He returns as a four-year starter at quarterback. Defensively, the Panthers return Michael Cordes, senior, and Jack Maruchak. He's also a senior, as we mentioned before, along the defensive line. Linebackers, Ty Fizenmayer. He's a junior, and Ty Sensitz are both back. Travis Riefenstahl, a junior. Anthony Orleman, a senior. E.T. Harris, a senior. And Alex Magnata rejoin Mahaffey as defensive backs. Senior Jacob the Leg Christopher will once again be responsible for all kicking duties. Talking with Coach Trembler, he feels the Panthers are loaded with impact skill players. He pointed out Alex Magnata and Ty Sensitz as big play wide receivers. Supporting cast receivers as well, Aris Weiss all had big summers too. Watch out for the Panther receiving core. In the backfield, we have four capable running backs in Garcia, Torres, also Fizenmara, and newcomer Jared Rome. By the way, Garcia was a 1,000-yard rusher as a sophomore, and he averages for his career, he's a senior, he averages 7.9 yards per carry. On defense, the Saucon staff will lean on Tyler Fizenmara and Jared Rome to be all over the field from their linebacker spots. Fizenmara is the man in the middle of that stingy defense. He's going to be a three-year starter and is averaging nine tackles per game for his career from that middle linebacker spot. In a recent interview with Saucon Source, Coach Trembler mentioned that juniors Travis Riefenstahl and Alex Magnata were ball hawks from the back end of that defense during the Panthers' 7v7 competitions this summer. He also mentioned, again, Jake Christopher is a panther to know. Coach Trembler says, kicker Jake is a difference maker with that powerful leg. As is usual, however, in football, it all starts with your quarterback play. Salkin is expecting a lot from senior Dante Mahaffey. His stats, career, 2,215 passing yards with 25 touchdowns. Last season in only five games, he was 51 of 91 for 828 yards, nine TDs, only two interceptions. Pretty good ratio there for Mahaffey. Many area coaches I've talked to are claiming that Mahaffey is among the very best quarterbacks in the entire Lehigh Valley. Some big shoes to fill. Dante certainly more than willing to live up to the hype. Some Saucon Valley football newcomers, senior Kale Markle, who many of you may recognize as a Panther wrestler, has joined the team and has been getting a lot of reps at the end. 
He's a little on the light side for that position, but he's long, he's tough, he's quick, and he will be well coached. Best of all, he's a competitor. Watch out for this kid. Freshman Jared Roan is another name to know. Looks like he will be taking the field as a linebacker and running back. Coach Trembler says that physically, Roan checks all of the boxes. Freshman Caleb Grimm and Elijah Torres, as well as newcomer Caleb Laudenslager, he's a sophomore, and Nate Monchine, a senior, will compete for playing time up front in the trenches. Coach Trembler also said that at some point this season, don't be surprised to see freshman Jack Robertson and Andrew Gilbert contributing on Friday nights. I tell you what, Panther fans, on Tuesday afternoon, Saucon Valley had an energetic and very spirited intra-squad scrimmage to end their practice. These boys were getting after it. There was quite a bit of trash talking going on. The offense battled the defense tooth and nail for about 30 minutes. I'm not sure which side was better, and it may sound silly to say Saucon won, but these Panthers, as a team, certainly got better with that hard-nosed competition. These boys like to compete. So, it appears that the Panthers have put the 2020 doldrum season behind them and are, like many of us individuals, looking to a much better 2021. Coach Brad Trembler said he really likes the hardworking culture that his players are buying into. The Panthers have averaged over 30 participants at their summer workouts all summer long, four days a week, over 30 kids consistently showing up. In addition, they had a, quite a bit of feel-good success competing against some other area schools, including Emmaus a couple of times, Northampton, East Stroudsburg South, and a much-improved Catasauqua. The Panthers even hit the road in late July for a 7v7 passing competition at Alverna University against teams from South Jersey, the D.C. area, and also Pottsville, who happened to be on the Panthers' schedule. Saucon Valley worked their way through that tournament bracket and found themselves in the championship finals. However, Mother Nature had seen enough about five minutes into that championship game, and a sudden nasty thunder and lightning storm brought about an abrupt end to the competition. It's going to be a fun and exciting football season for the Saucon Valley Panthers. So, we'll see you next week for a preview of the season opener between Saucon and Notre Dame. Until then, good luck, Panthers. The Source is with you. Here at Saucon Source, our mission is to provide information and make it as available as possible to the people in our community. A large part of that is a public service, and we're grateful for the support we have from local advertisers because that revenue helps keep the information flowing to you, our readers and listeners. Local news production does cost money, and that's why we've also introduced a voluntary membership option on Sock and Source, and we'd like to tell you a little more about that. Essentially, the membership is a recurring monthly contribution that shows your support for the work that we're doing. It helps guarantee that the information will remain free and accessible to you as well as to others in our community, and it also helps fund our future growth. Sock and Source is growing and we're expanding our coverage area. The more support we receive from the community, the better coverage we can provide and the more useful the site will be to you. So that's why we would invite you to visit our membership page on the website sockandsource.com. You can do that by clicking on join under my sock and source which you'll see on the right side of your screen if you're on a desktop or at the bottom of any article page. You'll see several membership options including a monthly membership for $7, a four-month membership for $25, or a yearly membership for $70. 
These are strictly voluntary contribution levels and they're not any part of a paywall. There's no requirement to contribute, but we are grateful for those who have already done so and we hope that you will consider purchasing a membership in the future. Doing so is quick and easy. You can do it securely online and you can cancel at any time. Thank you again to all our current members and thank you for considering becoming a future member. This week on No Rain Date, it's my pleasure to welcome Lisa Wolf, who's the manager of community engagement for the Center for Humanistic Change in Allentown. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We are excited to, to profile you and the Center for Humanistic Change, which is an organization that has been active in the Lehigh Valley and, and helping thousands of local residents for decades, but seems like maybe it has a little lower profile than than some other local organizations in that realm. And, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this interview. I think it's a great opportunity to spread the, the word that you're doing great work. I wanted to start off by talking a little bit about the history, which goes back to the 70s and how the, the organization has evolved, and then talk a little bit about your role within it. Okay. So the center was founded about 42 years ago, and originally the vision was doing some kind of drug and alcohol intervention programs as well as prevention education. But very quickly, I think it was after about only a year, they dropped the intervention piece and decided to focus solely on prevention education. And there aren't a lot of people that that do that. The only other agency in the Lea Valley that really does that is Valley Youth House. But Valley Youth House is a huge organization, and they have shelters and counseling, and they do a lot of other things, whereas we are relatively small, and we focus solely on prevention with the goal of preventing drug and alcohol use. But the other piece of that is not just educating about drugs, it's also helping people develop the coping skills that will help them get through the rough spots in life where you might want to turn to drugs and alcohol. Right. So that's basically the, the mission, you know, is helping people develop resiliency coping skills to live, you know, a healthy life and reach their full potential. Right. And that obviously, I I guess, is why so many of your programs are geared towards children and youth, because that's the time to prevent them from going down that road, right? Exactly. If we could reach every first, second, third grader, I think we could change things tremendously because they're, you know, it's hard for a lot of families, a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on in the world. And, you know, if we could get them at that young age to help them develop those skills, yes, I think things could be different. Right. And also kids today have so many more ways to connect with peers who might potentially influence them in the wrong direction. I would imagine that's that's part of the challenge that you face as far as encouraging these these prevention efforts yes absolutely and but we also focus on the family because that's where it all starts so we offer several parenting programs that i'm a little biased because i don't give them but i sit in on them sometimes and they're excellent giving parents the support 
some skills, ideas, and also the support of each other knowing we're all struggling. We're all not sure what to do as parents. There is no manual. And if you can help the parents do better, you know, you help the, the kids do better that way too. Right. And before we go any further, I wanted to talk about the, the fact that you're a private organization, but you're funded by local government. So there really is no cost for any of the, the programs that you offer, correct? Exactly. That's really important. I want people to know we are funded primarily through Lehigh and Northampton County Drug and Alcohol Divisions. And then we also have had generous grants from United Way, Jeff Bourne, Sylvia Perkin Foundation, Wawa, the Northampton Medical Alliance. So we do, we have a full-time grant writer now, which only happened about three, four years ago. So we also get grant money to support our programming as well. But yes, if you live, if the presentation is taking place in either Lehigh or Northampton counties, it is at no cost to you. And we sometimes do go out of the county fee for service, but I think we are very reasonable, very reasonable rates to do that. Okay, so hypothetically, if I'm a, a teacher or an administrator in an elementary school, I can reach out to you and say, I would love to have somebody come in and give a presentation to these classes, and, and then you would sort of organize it from there? Exactly. Now, we have very good relationships with in both counties with nearly every single public school charter school, Catholic school, everybody. We try to reach everybody because we also offer support. I don't know if you're familiar with the Student Assistance Program or STAP program. It is a state-mandated program in every school in Pennsylvania. And the goal of that is the team of adults, like teachers, guidance counselors, the school nurse, who come together to talk about kids they're concerned about that may have any kind of barrier to learning. So it could be things going on at home, things going on at school, whatever that struggle is. And we help support those teams of adults. Like these are the resources you need, or I can recommend this for you. And, or we've got this program that I think would help this group of kids. So we are really tied into the schools all over the Valley. That's not our sole, you know, delivery place or, or we support. But definitely the schools are, are a big part of our business, yes. Right. Well, that makes sense cause, because you yeah. have everybody sort of in one place there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Of course, with COVID, they weren't necessarily all in one place there. <laughs> so that probably threw a bit of a monkey wrench into um, oh your, my your God. efforts. Yeah. Talk about a fast learning curve, right? Mm-hmm. We all learned what Zoom was real fast. <laughs> sure. So... It took a little while to get going because the schools weren't exactly sure what they were going to do. But once it got rolling, like especially like around October, November of last year, I did a lot of uh, programs over Zoom, but some schools did allow us to come in. Mm. So we were doing programs on site as well. So we really had to shift gears. And while personal interaction is always, you know, your ideal we did find, though, there's advantages to that online thing, especially when it came to, to parenting programs in the evening. You know, parents are tired. It's hard to drag yourself back out the door at 6 o'clock at night to sit in a program. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to jump on your laptop and 
you know, through Zoom, be able to participate in that education. Mm-hmm. So I know we'll still continue to offer virtual programming moving forward. Oh, that's great. Happy to hear that yeah. because it, it does really expand your your reach when you when you have that it as an alternative. Does. It does. Exactly. You know, some of the audiences we really want to reach more, and we've been working on this over the years, are senior citizens, college students, young adults. They, we always feel like that, like 18 to maybe like 34, we kind of miss because they're probably not yet parents. They're no longer in the high school. So we're always looking at new ways to get into the community, wherever anybody is gathering in the community, we can come in there. I've gone to Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops. I did one in a park a couple months ago as a Boy Scout troop. You know, anywhere people gather, we can come in and do a program for you. I'm curious to know, like, digging a little deeper, diving a little deeper, how when you when you are approaching a program or having a program, is it set up so that you can connect emotionally with the students based on their age level and what their understanding of, you know, drugs and alcohol is at that particular level? Absolutely. So two there's two pieces to that. First of all, the philosophy behind the center was always hands, heart and head. So we're not there to lecture you. So our lessons are always very much activity-based. We had to get very creative to do that online, but we did. We did it. We, you know, our, our people are amazing and found ways to make things more fun. So we definitely want to connect with people that way. And, you know, that emotional piece is so important to make to help people connect to what you're teaching them. The other side of that is we use a lot of what they call evidence based programs means they've been tested, you mm-hmm. know, and, and show improvement in certain things. And then that we always have age appropriate, you know, the, it'll be whatever group, age group that is, we use the age appropriate. And then when it comes to drug and alcohol education, that has been my specialty for the past few years. You know, a group of eighth graders in the inner city is very different from a group of eighth graders up in Bangor. Mm-hmm. Right. So yep. we will adjust even for those kinds of things, what they're exposed to, what they already know on top of the age group. And we really work as partners with people to say, what is it you perceive as the need? What are you seeing in your school? I had one school call me fifth graders. They caught like three kids of date devices in fifth mm-hmm. grade. You know, so we went in and we addressed that more specifically. And that's what I love about the center is that we really want to do what, you know, give the community what they need and what they perceive as, as their need. Mm-hmm. And I see that you, you do have like certain teaching tools or programs, one of them being the mock teen bedroom, which I think is a cool concept. Can you sort of describe that and how that works? Yeah, our mock teen bedroom, that's one of our, uh, our pride and joy, and that's the way a lot of people know us. You know, mm. when I meet people, they go, oh, yeah, your bedroom. Because <laughs> it's been featured in local news, and we've been to a lot of places with it. So what we do is we bring a whole lot of stuff, things that you might find in a typical teen bedroom, but we set up a cot and a nightstand and, you know, a chair, things to make it look like a bedroom. 
And then inside that bedroom, we hide different kinds of drug-related items, paraphernalia. We have a lot of what they call stash cans. They look like everyday items, but they're actually adapted to hide valuables mm-hmm. or drugs. And we, it's a really hands-on opportunity for people to come in and kind of search and look for things. Because, you know, I know as a parent, it's really scary to worry think about your kid doing that. And, you know, most kids don't do drugs. Mm-hmm. But it can be any kid. And you, as a parent, you have to have your eyes open, your ears open, and just be aware of what's going on and know what to look for you know, in your kids that they might be using. So... That must-team bedroom, for most people, it's very eye-opening, and they really appreciate what they learn there because things change quickly, too. Like, you know, things the way people use marijuana today is not how people were using it in the 80s. Right. So they have to learn a whole new lingo and a whole new, you know, you know learn about all the new devices that are out there to smoke marijuana. I'm curious about the parents and... I guess, like you said, no parent, well, certainly no parent wants to ever think that their child is, is doing drugs or going to do drugs. How do you combat denial in parents, or is that something that you work on? We do, and that, you know, you got to tread lightly because you don't want to hit people over the head with it, and you don't want to scare them either. I know some parents will get real scared, but we are really lucky to have some families who have either had children who use drugs and are now in recovery, are currently using drugs, and who have lost their children to drugs. And they will often go out and join us um, at a moxie bedroom or when I do one of our opioid programs to say, you know, we were a quote-unquote normal family, and it can happen to you because it happened to us. Mm-hmm. And that is the emotional connection that I think really gives our program the impact that they have. I have had kids who I saw our program in high school see me two, three years later and remember me. But what they always remember most is that I had that parent with me or I had that person who is in recovery from drugs with me. And I don't care. That's okay that that's what they remember the most because that's that emotional connection. And they'll remember the stories. And I think that's pretty incredible, you know, and, and that, that's how you get through to people, that emotional connection. I'm sure an important aspect, too, as part of your education is combating stereotypes, because I know when I was growing up, you know, and before that, the stereotype of somebody using drugs was like somebody that looks like criminal type, you know, with long mm-hmm. hair or sunken eyes you know you think you can spot them but especially with like opioids and things like that that's just not true at all yeah and that's something we stress to the kids there is um, an opioid program we do that's really targeted at eighth graders and i start that by showing pictures of young people with just their first name and age and it's quiet and i just see slide after slide after slide and then say to kids you know what did you notice about them? You know, that they look quote unquote normal, happy, things like that. They're young. What do you think they have in common? And what they have in common is they all died of an opioid overdose and they all live right here in the Lehigh Valley. Mm-hmm. They're all local. And I think that pretty much drives that point home. They look like you, they look like your friends, your parents. That's one way 
we have tried to fight that stereotype and stigma. That's mm-hmm. the other big thing that we're yeah. always fighting too. That might be the biggest battle is the stigma around substance use, just like there is around mental health. Those two things kind of go hand in hand Absolutely. and both share a lot of stigma. Absolutely. And that's why it's so powerful when, when you do have a, a family that is willing to share their story as painful as that is, I'm sure, because otherwise you really don't know in a lot of cases that, that their child or their loved one died due to drugs. It seems like a never-ending yep. process to fight the stigma, but, but it's so important. They're, they're amazing. They have started parent support groups. There's a group that started called Lehigh Valley Reach. COVID kind of stopped things or slowed things down. But it's going to be a place for teens who are in recovery to gather. Oasis Community Center, which is at 22 and 512, mm-hmm. is, was created by Rhonda Miller in honor of her son, Ben, who died of an opioid overdose. And it is a place to support the families and loved ones of people who are either inactive use or who, or who have died from use. So she offers grief groups support for grandparents who are raising their grandchildren because of drugs. All kinds of things going on at Oasis. It's an incredible place that Northampton County helps her to support is helping families all over the valley. And turning that grief into something so positive is healing for them. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, benefiting hundreds and hundreds of people. Right. Right. No, that's fantastic. Sounds like a fantastic resource. Thank you for mm-hmm. for mentioning that. Do you think or is there evidence that COVID and the isolation that many people felt, adults, teens, kids, that that has led to an increase in drug abuse? Um, or oh, there's abuse? no doubt. There's no doubt. Overdose deaths were up so much. We thought 2017 was going to be the worst year ever when there were about 70,000 drug overdose deaths in the United States. 2018, it dipped a little bit, a couple percentage points. 2019, back up to about 71,000, and the numbers just came out about two weeks ago. Last year, over 91,000 overdose deaths, up 20,000, and absolutely people are relating it much of it to COVID because people in recovery lost the community and peer support that helped to keep them sober. So we that's where they believe the bulk of it came from. Was it from is from relapses? You know, we can't know for sure, but definitely that had an effect. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully that will prove to be just an anomaly and not part of another trend. Yeah. But I guess well, I, I've heard some experts talk about the fallout for mental health and drug addiction from that, from COVID. We're going to see the fallout for five to 10 years easy to hmm. try to, you know, turn that big thing around. Because, you know, even with all this education and awareness about opioids, they are still rampant. About all those overdose deaths, out of all of them, about two thirds involve an opioid of some kind. And the one we're seeing the most is fentanyl. Mm-hmm. So fentanyl that, you know, is the street drug fentanyl, and it is in everything. It's in heroin, it's in the meth supply, marijuana, cocaine, 
They're making it into pills. So you think you're buying a Percocet or a Xanax on the street, and you're buying pure fentanyl. Right. And it is so frightening to me how much it is out there, and it is deadly in very small amounts. And typically, I think when somebody can't is already hooked and they can no longer afford to buy opioids is when they switch over to heroin. Is that correct? That's correct. A lot. What we saw was a lot of people started with the pills either prescribed by a doctor or getting them from other people to misuse them because opioids like Oxycontin and Hydrocodone and Vicodin, they're very effective pain relievers. I mean, when you have a surgery or, you know, a bad accident or end-of-life pain, cancer pain, you know, they really can change the quality of life, but the side effect is that they make you feel pretty darn good, most people. Right. And that can be very seductive. They talk about opioids hijacking the brain, the pleasure center of the brain. That's basically what they do. And what we saw was a lot of people going from those medications into heroin, which turned into fentanyl. But as there are more laws around prescribing, doctors have become more conservative. You know, pharmacists are very careful because they could lose their license if they allow things to be filled, prescriptions to be filled. So we're not only seeing it come from there, but we're also seeing it just in the general drug supply. There should be drug supply. So it's kind of everywhere now. Right. Can you talk a little bit about your social-emotional learning programs and what what is social-emotional learning per se? Yeah, so the social-emotional programs that we do, we use evidence-based programs. And the one that I'm most familiar with and I absolutely love facilitating is called Second Step. Mm-hmm. And it curriculum from K to, I think it goes up to eighth grade, if I'm not mistaken. It involves like 30 to 45-minute lessons. To, you know, it starts with teaching kids about how you learn. You know, you use your ears and your eyes and and how to be respectful to other people when they're talking, and then goes into learning about reading people's facial expressions and how to get along with others, just those basic skills that kids often just aren't getting, Hmm. and how to be healthier, you know, not just in the way you take care of your body, but the way you take care of your brain. We'll talk about mindfulness and you know, sitting and being quiet and how that's okay. As they get older, you might talk a little bit more about meditation, things like that. So it's really about taking care of your everything. Right. <laughs> you know, taking care of your your emotions and it's okay to have those emotions and how to express them and, and understand them. Yeah, it seems so simple sometimes to me, but the kids eat it up. They really get it and really enjoy those lessons. And what's nice is if I go and do a 30-minute lesson in kindergarten, the teacher will will carry that out throughout the week. Hmm. You know, So they carry the lessons through and just their everyday teaching. One of the things, that, and what you just said made me think of this, that that's concerns me or, or makes me think about the, the current teenage generation is, is they seem many of them are, are a lot more desensitized to things than I was at that age before technology and, you know, the news 24-7, you know, all these things impact your brain. And when you're desensitized, I think it can 
maybe make bad choices less scary. So is that something that, that you guys work on? I can't give you any specific evidence about that. I'm sure there are people doing studies about that all over the place. But I can tell you about the brain. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that, you know, I really try to stress to parents and to the kids. So your brain goes through a tremendous amount of development from birth until about three. And then it continues to develop, but it slows down a bit. But when you hit adolescence, the development going on in your, your brain is incredible. There's all these different connections being made, paths being created, paths being destroyed because you're not going to need them. You know, when we think about teenagers who can sleep till noon, it's not just because their bodies are changing. It's because of what's going on in that brain. Hmm. So anything that you do that might be unhealthy can affect the brain. Like you said, the, the exposure to violence or spending 12 hours a day on video games. Mm-hmm. Certainly what, what you, you eat and definitely the drugs. Drugs change the brain structurally and how you, you feel, think, and behave. And your brain continues to develop until the age of 25. Mm. So I would, you know, when we just talk about, we talk about harm reduction because just say no doesn't work. <laughs> but you just talk about harm reduction, getting kids to not use marijuana and alcohol in their teens. And if they really feel the need to try, do it when you're in your 20s because the chances of addiction plummet, the chances of damaging the brain plummet. So you're absolutely right that, that things that our kids are exposed to are affecting those, you know, very fragile developing brains. Yeah, the, the just say no uh, messaging was at one time like considered, I guess, a great, a great success, but it never really, yeah. it, it was overly simplistic, I guess. And It was. And, and I tell kids that, I, you know, I can stay in here and tell you no, and you're still going to do what you want to do. But I'm going to give you some things to think about. This is what I want you to think about when you're thinking about your future and what you want. And then they've got to make that in the end. They have to make that decision. Right. Empowerment through information. Yep. In terms of the mentors that are provided at the school level, like who is a mentor and what qualifies them to be a mentor for children, prevention of drugs and alcohol abuse? Most of our mentors are either educators, they come from education and the social work field, that's where the majority come from. And they don't want to work full-time, so they work part-time. What they do is they are assigned to a school or several schools, because some schools have a mentor one day a week, some have two days a week. And we give them the flexibility how much they want to work. And it's at all different levels, elementary, middle, and high school. And they spend that day seeing kids who are referred, usually through that student assistance program or through the guidance counselor, who need that extra bit of support. So it's not counseling per se, it's more just another adult for that kid to trust and talk to and work through some things and teach them some more intense coping skills in small groups. That's, That's the ideal setting. And also what happens when you work with those kids in groups, they also learn to reach out to each other. I gave a few years of mentoring, and those kids all, I would put group them by kind of what they were dealing with. So maybe 
recent death in the family. And then they, you know, so those kids were in that group, and that's what we focused on, and then they learned to use each other to lean on, too. But one thing I say about our mentors, they are the most caring and compassionate people I know, and you don't get rich in this business. You, know, you do it because you want to help others. Mm-hmm. And I think we see some really nice success stories when it comes to our mentoring program. We see kids who either stop using drugs or reconsider those choices. We see an increase in their grades. We see a decrease in absenteeism with some of those kids. So, you know, we measure some things that we feel we really are making a difference in those kids. Great. The center is also tied in with local college nursing programs. Can you sort of talk about that a little bit? You know, through, through a lot of the connections I was able to make, I met some people um, who are nursing instructors. And over the last couple of years, I've been doing our HOPE heroin and opioid prevention education program and designed specifically for, for future healthcare workers. And so we talk about why addiction is a disease of the brain, get into the opioids, you know, what does someone who's using opioids, what do you look for, what does an overdose look for? And a lot of the focus, too, though, is on stigma and treating people who come to you with a drug problem with respect because you'd be amazed at the stories I have heard that nurses, doctors, just, not treating those people like they're sick and they are they're sick it's a disease and that's why i really feel like we're making an impact and i usually have somebody who is called a certified recovery specialist that is someone who has a history of drug use they go through a course they get trained and then they work with people in addiction as peers You know, they might work in a recovery center or at a rehab, or they might work within the county, at a hospital, and I try to get one of them to speak with me so they can say, listen, as a person who was addicted to drugs, you know, and now works in a healthcare setting, this is what we need you to do. This is, so it's just an invaluable piece of education that they get right from people who are on the front line. Right. Some of my favorite things to do. We do those at Cedar Crest the sales and St. Luke School Nursing. And that's a great thing that, that, like you said, is bearing fruit in terms of people's perceptions of addiction. Because I can remember, you know, it used to be more of an argument over whether it was a disease or not. And you don't really hear that as much anymore, which is good. Because yes. uh, you, you don't have free will to just stop or, you know, make, make a a rational choice at any point once you become an addict. And a lot of people will say, but, but why do they start in the first place? Well, the average age of first use is 12 to 14. That's why. <laughs> right. We all do stupid things when we're 12 to 14. The brain's not fully developed. We are inherently risk takers at that age. And we think we're going to live forever. That's why people, that's usually when they start. Not all, but most. Right, and people make other bad choices that that infect them with some type of disease, whether it's you know mental or physical. That just mm-hmm. is not not yep. a, not a not a good or a compassionate or helpful type of response. 
Can you talk about these programs that I understand you have, Strengthening Families Program in Northampton County and the Strong African American Families, which is in both Lehigh and Northampton counties? Yeah, so we're doing Strengthening Families in Northampton County, and what it is, it's a seven-week program. It's two and a half hours each week at night. It includes dinner, and it's for the whole family. So it's, let me back up a little bit. It's for families who have kids ages 10 to 14, but they bring the entire family, Mm -hmm. and we provide dinner so they can eat together. Then the kids who are 10 to 14 go in one room, parents go in another room, and they get a lesson on the same topic. It might be communication, family meetings. We talk to the parents about using consequences instead of punishment, things like that. And if they brought younger kids with them, we provide daycare for them, childcare mm. too, so that they, you know, the parents can really concentrate. And then the second hour, we bring those kids, 10 to 14, and the parents together and we do family activities. I know families, like I said earlier, it's hard to get your bottom out the door at <laughs> night when you're tired, but I see families, they enjoy it so much. I've seen families come back and do it with every single kid they have when they hit that age. Wow. It's very hands-on, and it's an incredible program. It's, it's one of my favorites. We're going to be starting one next week at New Bethany Shelter in Bethlehem working with families that are there. And then we've also offered it to the school. Sometimes a guidance counselor will send the word out and we bring it to the school. You know, anywhere people, churches, community centers, we can do it. And it's at no cost to the families. It's all funded. And then Strong African-American Families is very similar to Strengthening Families, but it also addresses some of the issues more specific to the African-American community. And we've not, we just got trained in that, and we'll be starting that in the fall in both counties. Great. And this seems like a good point to mention that you do provide programming in Spanish, so language shouldn't be a barrier to accessing your services. Yeah, we have several people on staff who are fluent in Spanish, and we offer a lot of our programs, yeah, in Spanish. Great. Thank you. I know you yeah. have a couple of forums that are upcoming for opioid and addiction recovery. And yes. Thanks for letting me plug those. Yes, um, please. September 14th is the Lehigh County Forum. It's a virtual forum. It's called Opioid and Addiction Recovery Forum. Our keynote speaker is Patrick Kennedy, the former congressman, mm-hmm. who wrote a book about his own struggles with mental health and substance misuse. So he will be live virtually, and then we also have some people from the local community speaking, people who are certified recovery specialists, people involved with the Blue Guardian program in Allentown, which is where a police officer and a CRS goes to a home after someone has been revived with Narcan from an opioid overdose Mm -hmm. to provide them resources and the opportunity to get help. And then... The one in Northampton County is on September 23rd, virtual again, with the keynote speaker being Mark Merrow, who is a former uh, WWE champion who has his own struggles with substance use disorder. And again, then some local families, doctors providing programs. So it's really for anybody who's interested. 
We do offer continuing education credit to social workers and a few others, but we are really targeting high schools and colleges, and several have committed that they will have their students together in a room that entire day participating, you know, online with that program. And we're really excited about it. It's a lot to put together, but Mm. we're really excited it's going to have a little bit of that in-person piece as well as online. So people can go to our website and register. I was just going to say we can include the link to register on your site in our description for the podcast. That would be wonderful because it's all at no cost. Again, it's, it's free training. We've done a few in the past, not quite as ambitious as these, but with a lot of success. We've had people from all over the state attend some of these. Great. Yeah, I mean, those are high-profile individuals who are courageous enough to put a face on on the problems that they've had and really can have have a positive impact by getting their message out there. I want to sort of close out by talking a little bit more about your website and how people can find information there and how they can follow the Center for Humanistic Change on social media and in other ways so that they can stay connected with all your programs and everything you have going on. Yeah, so we, we're working on the social media thing. So we are, we are on Facebook where we post anything that would be open to the public we also share information on a lot of other agencies are doing, you know, what they're doing in the community, their activities. So if you are a loved one is struggling, that, you know, we, we offer a lot of resources on our website to help you get the help that you need. And then we also have some educational videos on there as well as a calendar of events of these things that we have coming up. And it's just easy. It's thechc.org. That's where you find us. If you are interested in a program for your group, like a youth group, you know, a scout troop, there is a way that you can send us an email on there and somebody will contact you about offering a program. So, yeah, that's that's the way to do it through the website. And I also want can I plug one more thing? Sure. That we're doing in Northampton. So... We're working a lot in the Northampton School District. It's one of our focuses this year, along with a recovery center that's up there called Change on Main, and, you know, trying to break down the stigma of recovery centers. You know, people have this vision of it's full of people who are, you know, doing illegal things. Right. Our recovery center is a place for people who are in recovery or still struggling with addiction to meet and to get the help they need. And they were helping to get the word out that they are a part of your community, too, these places. So one thing we're going to do, working with Change on the Northampton, is a food drive. So we're already collecting food in Northampton at Change on Maine and Horwitz Trucks, or at the center they can drop donations, and we're going to do a distribution on August 26th to help families in the Northampton Area School District. So that's just one, you know, area we're concentrating on right now. And I look forward to spreading that out wherever, you know, people have a need for food or any other kind of community assistance. That's a great idea. And if you decide to have something like that in Saucon Valley, say, or Fountain Hill or one of our, our areas where we, we really cover the area, we'd be happy to help get the word out about that. 
Absolutely. Yeah, there is um, a recovery center called Hope Recovery Center in Bethlehem. Okay. And, you know, they're offering, what we're actually doing is starting programs where teens 12 to 15 can come after school, and we're doing some life skills and arts programs with them, creating projects to be displayed in the community. So we're really, you know, through the years, our main way of reaching people through schools, we're trying to really expand that. Mm-hmm. into other areas. And did I see that you also will come out and talk to businesses too? Absolutely. We have a, a heroin opioid program specifically for the workplace. So it addresses opioids in general, but it also talks about how they affect the environment, the work environment, and how employers can create policies and and encourage their employees to, to speak up if they're concerned about a coworker. For so many years, anything associated with drugs was punitive. Mm-hmm. And that's really changing now that we treat it as a health issue. It's to get people help, not to punish them. Right. So, yes, we provide programs for businesses. It's really any group. I would encourage any business that, that has a significant number of employees, you know, whether you think that they're, that anybody would ever do drugs or not, I think it's a great resource to take advantage of because you want a safe workplace, a productive workplace, and drugs can ruin both of those things. So, um, yeah, that's great. And here's a, you know, a statistic that that blew me away was 70% of people who have some kind of substance use disorder have full-time jobs. Hmm. Wow. I would not have thought it was that high. No, I neither would I have thought that, but I've seen those statistics in many reliable places. So it's you know our vision of who is using drugs is not that stereotype. Exactly. So you are working with people who are struggling. Mm-hmm. You're going to church with them. Your kids are playing soccer with their kids. You know things like that that we have to open our eyes and realize it's everywhere. So true. Well, Lisa. I want to thank you again for joining us. This information has been great, and I know it'll really connect with our listeners. I encourage all our listeners to visit the Center for Humanistic Change website, which is thechc.org, for more information. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been my pleasure as well. Thank you so much for letting me talk about the Center tonight. We've been recording No Rain Dates since late 2019, and we've produced a fair number of episodes at this point. We would love to hear your feedback about what we're doing. What makes you tune in every week? What ideas do you have for interview guests? Is there something that you think the podcast is missing? Feel free to share your thoughts, whether they're good, bad, or indifferent with us. You can do that by emailing josh at josh at com. No Rain Date is a local news and information podcast, and we focus on the Saucon Valley. However, our guests are from the Lehigh Valley and beyond. So please try and keep that in the back of your mind when you're thinking about ideas for future episodes. Thank you. No Rain Date is an original production of Sock and Source, LLC. Our theme music is provided by This Way to the Egress. 
For more great music by them, be sure to follow This Way to the Egress on Spotify. Thank you for listening. Every night, he climbs the tower, sees your face on every dollar.